Well, it's good to be with you guys. Um, we're, we're on a new sermon series that we started last Sunday titled True Worship. And most of you, if not all of you know, we're going through this transition where Ron, our longtime leader of our music on Sunday mornings, he's transitioning out of his role as that leader for, he's been doing it for over 40 years He's transitioning out of that role. Brandon and Haley are coming on to not only lead the music aspect of our Sunday services, but also our whole Sunday morning experience. And so they'll be overseeing things like our greeters, the people in the sound booth, even our breakfast downstairs, all, all, that, all the different aspects that go into making what we do on Sundays happen. And because we're going through this transition, we thought it would be a really great time to circle back around to why do we come here on Sunday mornings? Why, wh- what are we trying to accomplish? Um, I think most of us know we're here to worship. But what does that mean and why is that so important? And so we're asking these very foundational questions because we never want it to be We just come here because we always came here, or we just come here because we believe we're supposed to. We're really not sure why, but we do it anyways. We want want us all to be on the same page so that we can move as one on a Sunday morning. And so, last Sunday, we started by determining what worship is. And I gave the definition, that true Biblical worship is what, you know, worship is, is defined as by what the Bible has to say is loving, trusting, and obeying something supremely with your head, your heart, and your hands. We also determine that we're all worshipers. There's nobody that exists that doesn't worship. Even an atheist is guided by a faith. It's not a faith in a divine being. But it's a faith in some kind of worldview that they subscribe to that informs and influences everything they do. So we're all worshipers, right? And we also determine, too, we have to choose what we worship wisely because what we worship, we become. And that's why these questions of what is worship and who or what should we be worshiping are critical. They're, I believe they are the two biggest, most important questions a person can ask. Because they will set the trajectory of your entire life. They, the, how you answer those questions will determine how you spend your money, how you spend your time, how, how you prioritize certain values and, and different aspects of your life. And so... Last week, those are the things we talked about. This morning, what I want to do is I want to give you four reasons as to why you should choose to worship God. Why you should worship Him and why that is the best decision you can make. So we're going to pray and then we'll dive in. I don't have a passage that, one passage that we're going to be going through this morning, I'm going to be bouncing around to different passages and they'll be on the screen. So I'm just going to read those passages as they relate to each point. So I'm not going to start by reading uh, a scripture passage, just to give you a heads up, a little bit different this Sunday. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for who you are and what you have done. And Lord, as we consider why we should worship you, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and minds, that you would help us to see that you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our supreme love, our supreme uh, trust, and you are worthy of our supreme obedience. Lord, help us to understand that, why that's true. And, and Lord, I pray for those of us who know that, and, and, and that's rooted in our hearts and minds, and, and, and is rooted in how we live and our actions. Lord, I pray that we'd be just reminded of how great of a God you are, and that we've made the right decision. Because following you, obeying you, is often a very difficult thing. And sometimes I think we can all, if we're being honest, you know, be tempted to, to do what we see other people doing and live how other people are living. Lord, I pray this morning that you remind our hearts that it's all worth it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so four reasons why you should worship the God of the Bible, the one true God. Here's, here's reason number one. He is worthy of our worship. Reason number two, he has loved us extravagantly. Number three, it leads to eternal life. And number four, it will enable us to truly enjoy God's good gifts. So let's look at the first one. He is worthy of our worship. That's the first reason we should worship him. Many of you are familiar with Psalm 103, right? It's an amazing psalm of how God has blessed us, of how God has provided us with so many benefits. And in Psalm 103, King David, he exhorts us, hey, do not forget all of his benefits. I'm here to tell you this morning that even if you were to take all of God's good gifts in your life away, he is still worthy of your worship. Even if all he did was create you and nothing else, God still deserves your ultimate love, trust, and obedience. And here's why. There is nothing in the, great, in the universe that is greater than the God of the Bible. Nothing in the universe. He is the MVP of the universe. My boys have recently gotten into collecting baseball cards, which I love because when I was young, I collected baseball cards as well. And so it brings me back to my childhood. I can remember, uh, actually, I still have a whole tote of baseball cards in my basement. I can remember when I was young and I was at my grandma's house and she brought out these shoe boxes full of my uncle's baseball cards. And it was like I struck gold. I can remember going through those cards. Most of them were from the 60s and 70s. And I remember my uncle, he gave me a 1972 Pete Rose card that I still have in that tote, I'm sure, in a, in a plastic cover, you know, those thick plastic covers. I remember looking through those shoe boxes with my Beckett magazine. Do you remember the Beckett magazines? They tell you how much each card's worth. And I was assessing, and I was looking at the back of these cards to see if, all right, are these players good? And, and my boys do the same thing. 
you know, they're going through their baseball cards. They're reading the stats on the back of the card to determine if they've got some, some good cards to assess their value. Could you imagine reading the back of God's card, his stats? Can you imagine? Consider the words that Dave read earlier in Psalm 145. Consider just this psalm, what it has to say about who God is. In that psalm, when Dave read it, it states that God's greatness is unsearchable. He performs mighty and awesome acts. He is gloriously majestic. His goodness is great, which causes him to be good to all. He is righteous in all his ways, meaning he always does the right thing. He is gracious and full of compassion. He is slow to anger, which of course means he is patient. He is great in mercy. His kingdom is glorious and everlasting, which means none of his opponents can conquer him. He raises up all who, are, who, all who have fallen and are bowed down. All the eyes of the world look to him for sustenance, and he gives it to them. He's able to destroy the wicked. He is holy. He's completely set apart, different than the rest of everything he has created. Right now, I'm currently working through the book of Job, because I'm reading the book in chronological order. And uh, so I'm in Job, and I just got done reading this. I think this was on Wednesday. Job 9, 2 through 12 says this. This is Job talking. How can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and prospered? He removes the mountains and they do not know when he overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear, the Orion, and the Pleiades? I don't know. I'm not sure what that is. In the chambers of the south, he does great things past finding out. Yes, wonders without number. If he goes by me, I do not see him. If he moves past, I do not perceive him. If he takes away, who can hinder him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And so just taken from the small portion of Scripture, if we were to read the back of God's baseball card, it would say, The all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, sovereign, ever-present, holy, righteous, just, faithful, eternal, unchanging creator and sustainer of the universe, the source of all love, all goodness, and absolute truth. That sounds like a being worthy of our worship. I would say so. I would say so. Tom Brady may be the GOAT in the football world. Michael Jordan may be the GOAT in the basketball world. 
God is the real goat. For those sports fans, non-sports fans, greatest of all time. We're not calling God a goat. Yeah. That'd be a bit confusing, wouldn't it? Worthy of our worship, then we're calling him a goat, right? He is the one who's really deserving of our praise. He's the one who is the king of kings and lord of lords. Take all the gifts that he has blessed us with, you take them all away, and he's still worthy of our worship simply because of who he is. Let's get to what he's done, though, and then the, his value just continues it, you know, his the reasons, I shouldn't say his value, the reasons for our worship just start to compound and multiply. So here's the second reason why we should worship the God of the Bible. He has loved us extravagantly. If you were to look up the word extravagantly in the dictionary, you would find this. This definition, lacking restraint in spending money or using resources, exceeding what is reasonable or appropriate, absurd. God has loved you in an absurd way. He has, <laughs> without restraint, he has loved each one of us. Let me give you four ways in which God has loved us extravagantly. The first is he has created us in his image. This is something we take for granted, that out of the entire creation, we are the only ones, the Bible says, that are made in God's image. We were made to be like God. To be made in God's image means that we're able to think, we're able to reason, we're able to plan, we're able to choose, we're able to create, we're able to communicate and experience relationships that are full of love and trust and commitment. No other, no other part of the created order can say that. We are the ones made in God's image that are able to do these things. What a gift. What extravagant love. And to think that he created all that we see for our, in, our enjoyment. Amazing. Not only has he created us in his image, he's given us the task to rule over the earth. We are at the top of the food chain. We are the ones who are enabled to create gardens and cities and art and music and business. No other creature can say that. Thirdly, he has allowed us to have a relationship with him. It's another aspect of how he's loved us extravagantly. Out of all creation, we are the ones that can know him in this intimate, personal sense. We can relate to him, communicate with him, enjoy his friendship and his love, enjoy his character and his attributes. And this is just remarkable when you consider Psalm 1611. This is what it says of God. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Isn't that amazing that God has created us so that we would know him and therefore experience fullness of joy? God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be happy. The fourth reason, the fourth way that God has loved us extravagantly is showering us with good gifts. 
Think of all the good gifts in your life. Think about all the basic things that you enjoy in your life. Think about how good a hot shower feels. Think about how good a dip in the pool on a hot summer's day feels. Think about how God has made your taste buds so that you can enjoy food and drink. How he's given you pleasurable sensations of touch. How he's given you the ability to look on things that are pleasing to the eyes. He's given you the ability to smell the lovely fragrance of a flower. Oh, the enjoyment of these things. Think about how nice it is to walk through a park. Think about how nice it is to cuddle your kids. All good gifts from a loving God. Think about the family and friends he's placed in your life. Think about all the possessions that you have that God has given to you. Think about this church family that God has blessed you with. It's all a gift. Every good gift comes from God. That's what James tells us. We sent Isaiah off to kindergarten this past week. There's a, there's a picture of him with his first day of kindergarten sign. And I was just praising God that he has given me two sons. And he's excited to go to kindergarten, praising God that he's got a great teacher in an air-conditioned building. How nice that is. And that he had a great first week. Like, he, he loves it. Praise God. Gifts, gifts, and more gifts. It would be impossible to count all of God's blessings in our lives, even if we're going through a really difficult circumstance. They are so numerous. And here's what's crazy about all of this. So we got this amazing, great God, the most amazing being in all the universe, so great that if he never did something for us, he would still be worthy of our worship. And then he loves us extravagantly by creating us in his image, making us ruler over the world on his behalf, by giving us all kinds of of good gifts and just doing so much for us. And this is the crazy part. We've rejected the MVP of the universe, the GOAT. We've all rejected the one who loves us so extravagantly by creating us in his image, by giving us the privilege of ruling over the earth, by allowing us to have this a relationship with him where we can find pleasure at his right hand and who showered us with countless gifts. And so what does God do? Does he stop loving us? No, his love just gets even more extravagant and absurd. That's what he does, even more without limitation. What he decides to do is the unthinkable, the unimaginable. In the person of Jesus Christ, God becomes man. The one who owns every beast in the forest and a cattle on a thousand hills, think about that, became poor. The limitless God limits himself. The ever-present God restricts himself to being in one place at one time. The all-powerful God allows himself to grow tired and weary. The pure, morally spotless, righteous, holy God becomes a criminal and a curse. And the eternal, unkillable God becomes killable 
by subjecting himself to the worst kind of death imaginable. Hours of torture and then crucifixion. Phenomenal. Talk about absurd, crazy, reckless, in the good sense, love. The ancients considered crucifixion to be the most shameful, the most painful, and the most abhorrent of all executions. The Roman statesman Cicero said it is the most cruel and disgusting penalty and the most extreme penalty. The Jewish historian Josephus, who or Josephus, who certainly witnessed enough crucifixions himself, called it the most wretched of deaths. The Roman jurist Julius Paulus listed crucifixion in in first place as the worst of all capital punishments, ahead of death by burning, death by beheading, and death by wild beast. Why? Why would God do this? Why would he love in such an extravagant, reckless, absurd way? John 3.16, a verse that we're seeing all the time now that football has started behind the field goal post. And it's a good thing to see. And it's a good thing to see repeatedly. For God so loved the world. May this never become stale to us. May this never become something that we just take for granted. That does not move our heart and our affections. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Why did God in Christ die such a horrible death? To rescue us from sin and death. That's the answer. So that we could experience eternal life with him. The eternal life that we were created for. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was the greatest act of love the world has ever seen and will ever see, plain and simple. What extravagant love. And this leads us to our next point. We should worship God because he is worthy of our worship. He has loved us extravagantly and because it leads to eternal life. Now, when John talks about eternal life in his gospel, he talks a lot about it. He's really emphasizing not the length of life, but the quality of life. John knows that every person that li- you know, every person is going to live forever. Every person is an eternal being in that sense. We're all going to live forever. The question is not, will we live forever? The question is, what will be our quality of life as we live forever? That is the question. For those of us who believe in in a triune God and the redemption uh, from sin and death that he has accomplished through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, John says that we will have eternal zoe. Zoe is the Greek word that is translated life. And, And zoe means absolute fullness of life, life real and genuine, a life active and vigorous, blessed. The kind of life that belongs to God. And here's something that I think a lot of people overlook. This eternal zoe is available now to those who are united to Christ through faith. We can experience eternal life in the present via God's spirit that lives inside of us. You see, when we worship God... 
that eternal Zoe becomes more and more a reality for us. God transforms us as we worship him. That's why worship is so important because it's a, a, a major part of our discipleship sanctification process. When we worship Christ by loving him supremely, by trusting him supremely, by obeying him supremely, we begin to experience real, vibrant life. The fruit of the Spirit starts to grow in our minds and our hearts and then outward through our actions. More and more of our thoughts, words, and actions are characterized by love, by joy, by peace, by patience, by kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Who could use more of that in their life? I can. God's image in us as we worship him that has been tarnished and disfigured due to our sin starts to be seen in us again. We, we become more fully human. For those who are united to Christ, we are on this progression from, from a beast to a beauty. Those who are not united to Christ are on a progression from beast to beast, an uglier, more nasty beast. And once we start experiencing that eternal Zoe that John talks about a lot, often our relationships with other people start to improve because we're willing to forgive because Christ forgave us. We're willing to resist seeking vengeance because God has said, hey, it's my job to repay evil, not yours when we're united to, to Christ, hey, when we not only start to experience eternal Zoe in the present, but we also look forward to that day when eternal Zoe will come in its fullest sense with the return of Christ. Life that includes such vibrance, such vitality that we'll actually see God face to face and live. Life that includes having all our tears wiped away. Life that includes no more death. No more sorrow. No more crying. Life that includes a resurrected body that won't wear out and die. Life that includes a renewed world free from the effects of sin and death. Zoe full and complete forever. Here's the thing that also the Bible makes clear. So if we worship God. With our head, hands, and hearts, we're going to experience that eternal zoe more and more as we progress through this life and we're conformed into the image of Christ and we'll experience it in its fullest sense when Jesus returns. But you know what else the Bible makes clear? That if we worship anything other than God, it just leads to death now and forever. Romans 1, if, you were, if I was to pull that out and we were to read it right now, here's what you would find. This... Romans 1 really details the kind of death that worshiping anything other than God leads to. You would find in Romans 1, economic disorder, social disorder, family breakdown, and relational breakdown. If you, if you were to read through that passage. Think about it. When we worship anything other than God, it enslaves us. That's what idols do. They enslave us. If we worship anything other than God, it starts to consume us and it causes all kinds of destruction in our life. I know I've given you these examples before, but I, I think they're worth repeating. 
if you worship your kids, if they're what you're loving supremely, trusting for your happiness and your significance supremely, if you're, you know, organizing your life around them supremely, kind of like your obedience to them, you're going to destroy your marriage. Your spouse isn't going to feel loved and cherished because it's always about the kids. When they move out of the house, the kids move out of the house, there's going to be nothing left of your relationship. You'll be slavishly working to make them successful, your kids, so you can justify your existence. And then when they fail, you're going to be a wreck. And you'll put so much pressure on your kids to perform and be successful that they'll end up despising you and resenting you. You're never going to be satisfied with their performance. In your mind, they always could do better. You're going to compare yourself with other parents. You're going to compare your kids with other kids, which will either lead you to being inflated about how awesome you are or deflated because your kids aren't as great or you're not as good of a parent. So you're either going to become prideful or depressed. And then you're going to find that your kids can't bring you the significance and the satisfaction and the security that your heart desires. If you worship your career, if you love your career supremely, if you trust it supremely, if you obey it supremely, it's going to destroy your life as well. We see this all the time, right? You're going to work like crazy, which is going to be horrible for your physical health. When you're not officially working, you're gonna, your mind's going to be at work, and so you're not going to be able to be present in your relationships, which is going to destroy your marriage, and it's going to hurt your relationship relationships with your children. You're going to mistreat your coworkers to get ahead. And after you're done sacrificing year after year your marriage and your family on the altar of career, and you finally reach that salary and that position that you were aiming for, all these years you're going to find that it doesn't bring you the happiness that you thought it would bring. Look, if we look to any created thing to bring us the security and significance and satisfaction that only God can bring us, it's going to break our hearts and it's going to fail to deliver. It's what Romans 1 tells us. And so this leads us to our fourth and final takeaway. Worship will enable us to truly enjoy God's gifts. What's interesting, and this is very counterintuitive, but what's interesting is when you worship anything but God, the thing you worship, you start to enjoy less and less over time. It's very counterintuitive. King Solomon, for example, was the richest person who ever lived. Maybe. He was one of the richest, for sure. His life was full of the finest things, beauty, education, productive work, art, music, women, the finest food and wine, entertainment, success, and power. He didn't just find a new spouse when he became rich and powerful. He, he acquired 700 wives and 300 mistresses. He states in Ecclesians 2.10, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. Solomon possessed nearly everything we like to worship and seek for happiness. And here's his assessment. 
This is his appraisal once he attained all this. Ecclesiastes 2.11 says, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was a king toward it under the sun. You see, all those things that Solomon was working towards to obtain and find pleasure in, as time went on, he enjoyed those things less and less, and they did not deliver, and they only led to disappointment. C.S. Lewis describes this reality well. Check this out. The woman who makes a dog the center of her life loses, in the end, Not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog keeping. Every preference of a small good to a great or partial good to a total good involves the loss of the small or partial good for which the sacrifice is made. You can't get second things by putting them first. You can't get second things. You get second things only by putting first things first. So let's go back to our examples. Let's go back to the example of the, of the woman who has made her children her God, right? Does she enjoy her children? Not really. Not really. Lennon. Is, is that Lennon? Mm, she's so cute. Does that woman woman enjoy... Enjoy your kids? Not really. Look, her all-consuming drive to give her children a perfect life makes it impossible for her to actually enjoy them. Her overprotectedness, protectiveness, her, her fears and insecurities, her need to control every detail of her children's lives just makes the family miserable. So does this mean, and we could take work. You know, we could use that example as well and, and, and find that worshiping work actually leads you to enjoy work less and less and less. And then when you finally you realize that it has enslaved you and it can't deliver on what you thought it would, it just breaks your heart. And then you just start to despise it. So does this mean that we should feel guilty about loving our kids? Does this mean we should feel guilty about enjoying our jobs and hobbies and whatever else? Uh, we are tempted to worship. No, we should enjoy these things. The, the trick, and I think the key, is that we allow these things to point us to God. If we do that, then these things become great assistance to the worship of the one true God. Author Joe Rigney writes this. We ought to press into the goodness of nature, our children, our friends, our food, whatever, as a way of creating mental and emotional categories for knowing what he's like. Press into those good gifts in your lives. And if you allow them to point to the giver of the gifts, and the gifts aren't an end but a means to that end, you're going to enjoy those gifts even more. And you won't become sinfully entangled by them. Author Gary Thomas, he gives this explanation on this very point. When God turns my soul toward him, 
Many of the very things that used to lure me away from his presence now becomes cause now become causes of celebration and stimulants of vigorous worship. Where before food might have captured my heart, now it captures only my taste buds and makes my heart sing for such a generous God. Where before a claim might have, a cap, might have captured my soul, now it humbles me and leaves me standing in, an awe of su- in awe of such a capable God. Where before family might blind me to the eternal, now it gives me a picture of what it means to be part of his heavenly kin. While earthly pleasures aren't ends in themselves, they can effectively serve as signposts to God and doorways to gratitude and spiritual intimacy. So why should we worship God? And why is it the best choice? We could list many reasons. Here are the four that I gave you this morning. He is worthy of our worship. He has loved us extravagantly. It leads to eternal life now and forever. And it will enable us to truly enjoy God's gifts and not be enslaved by them. Let's pray. Lord, help us to put first things first so that we can truly appreciate and enjoy second things, the many gifts that you have given to us. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that would live with such an attitude of gratitude that we're aware of the good gifts in our lives and we're constantly allowing those gifts to direct us to your greatness, to speak to us about your attributes and your characteristics and how amazing of a God and Father you are. That it would point us back again to your extravagant love, your absurd love that you express to us without limit. You were willing actually to limit yourself so that you could love us without limits. It's pretty amazing, God. I pray that these truths wouldn't become dull and lifeless and rote. That you would enable our hearts to feel afresh, God, that you are a great wonder that is this amazing, transcendent God that you are, that you love us in an imminent personal, intimate, direct way. We thank you. Thank you for giving us what we don't deserve. May we worship you fully through trusting you and loving you and serving you with our head, hearts, and minds. Out of gratitude what, for what you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.